Welcome to episode 11 of Impact Medicom's podcast series on precision medicine and oncology. In this episode, hosted by Impact Medicom Sarah Desette, we welcome Dr. Anna Tinker, medical oncologist at BC Cancer in Vancouver and a clinical associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. In this episode, we discuss the development of pan-Canadian consensus paper on the selection and use of PARP inhibitors for the first-line maintenance treatment in ovarian cancer. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. For the final episode of our ovarian cancer series, we have invited Dr. Anna Tinker, who has led the development of a set of consensus statements on the selection and use of PARP inhibitors as maintenance therapy for patients with ovarian cancer. So as Impact Medicom provided medical writing assistance for this paper, I know the goal was to create a list of statements with supporting evidence to aid Canadian oncologists in the selection and use of PARP inhibitors. Can you talk about what population of ovarian cancer patients this paper really focuses on and why PARP inhibitors are an important treatment option for those patients? Hi, thank you so much for having me. This paper really focuses on women with advanced stage high-grade ovarian cancers, so high-grade serous, high-grade endometrioid cancers, cancers that are typically associated with either the BRCA mutations or the presence of homologous recombination deficiency, but, but not all those cancers have those molecular features. The importance of writing this paper was to highlight the role of PARP inhibitors in the treatment of advanced stage high-grade ovarian cancers, in particular, as we've now seen a number of well-conducted randomized phase three trials that have demonstrated the benefit of maintenance PARP inhibitors. But the trials have had uh, different inclusion criteria, patients with different molecular features, And therefore, we really wanted to explain to the Canadian uh, oncology community how to interpret the data and how that data will influence decision-making for therapy in that patient population. And who participated in the development of the paper? For the writing of this paper, we did our very best to make sure we included many of the Canadian experts in the field of gynecologic oncology. Participants included medical oncologists and gynecologic oncologists and folks from across all of Canada to make sure we had good regional representation and could put into context how that data would be interpreted in multiple settings throughout uh, the nation. And so part of the paper focuses on genetic testing to inform PARP inhibitor maintenance strategies. So can you describe how genetics influence decisions on PARP inhibitor selection? Yeah, so any oncologist treating gynecologic cancers now become a geneticist in part because, of course, we know that many of our patients with high-grade ovarian cancers may carry genetic predisposition to the cancer in the form of a BRCA1 or 2 mutation and other hereditary predisposing mutations. The other thing already mentioned in my earlier answer is that many tumors, many high-grade ovarian tumors are also associated with something called homologous recombination deficiency. And so knowing the genetics of the patient and the genetics of the tumor become important when looking at PARP inhibitor selection, particularly in first-line therapy, because we want to understand, first of all, how much of an impact would the PARP inhibitor have on the patient in terms of prognosis and patient outcomes. 
And we want to be able to look at how to choose a PARP inhibitor based on certain factors that might be genetic in the tumor, such as BRCA mutations or HRD. Having the valuable genetic information from both tumor and germline testing helps to guide the therapeutic choices we have for patients and helps us discuss the benefits of treatment and when needed, the prognosis. So what testing is available currently in Canada? Currently, I think it's going to be quite standard across all of Canada for all patients with high-grade ovarian cancer to have access to germline genetic testing. And most provinces will be using a panel looking at BRCA1 and 2 mutations and other hereditary mutations that may be associated with ovarian cancer. I think many provinces, most jurisdictions, I'm sure, are now also moving to tumor testing to look for those patients who might have only a tumor-based mutation in the BRCA1 and 2 genes, as these have also been shown to benefit from maintenance PARP inhibitors. Homologous recombination testing is not currently regularly available or funded throughout Canada, although some centers in in Canada might have access and patients can self-pay for homologous recombination testing. So it's a bit of a shifting landscape with respect to, to some of the test availability, but the germline testing and tumor testing is increasingly being available everywhere. The paper also talks about which PARP inhibitors may be selected in certain scenarios. So can you discuss which PARP inhibitors are available in Canada as maintenance therapy following first-line treatment advanced high-grade ovarian cancer? Yes. So in Canada, we have access to two PARP inhibitors, uh, Olaparib and Niraparib. These have both been studied in first-line maintenance treatment for advanced high-grade ovarian cancers. Olaparib primarily has been studied in patients with BRCA one or two mutations, although not exclusively. And niraparib has been studied in patients with or without a BRCA mutation. How do you decide uh, which PARP inhibitor to give a patient, say, who is BRCA mutation positive? This is a good question because for BRCA mutation positive patients, we do have access to both olaparib and niraparib. And I think that we would look at factors, patient factors to, to help decide between the available options. So both drugs seem to have comparable efficacy as much as we can compare across trials. And factors that would probably influence my decision-making include the patient's existing comorbidities. For example, with niraparib, there may be hypertension as a toxicity of treatment, and maybe patients with very poor, poorly controlled blood pressure would probably prefer to give them olaparib. There might be some people who would strongly prefer to try taking a drug once a day because they fear, you know, they might forget some of their medications. So in that case, niraparib might be a more reasonable consideration. Otherwise, honestly, it's there's no specific drug factor that would make you choose one or another. It's the patient in front of you and the discussion with them that could help guide which of those two agents would be appropriate. So that's for the BRCA mutation positive kind of group of patients. What about for BRCA negative patients? Would you give PARP inhibitor to say almost all patients with BRCA negative disease? There's no black and white answer. So for BRCA negative patients, currently in the Canadian landscape, we really have niraparib that's available. BRCA negative disease can be further subgrouped into homologous recombination deficient or proficient disease. 
but we don't regularly have access to testing. If you did have access, the homologous recombination deficient group, at least using the tests that were included in the trials upon which these indications are based, so primarily the myriad HRD test, if you knew the patient was HRD positive, you could predict that they may obtain more benefit from a PARP inhibitor than those who are HR proficient. However, the test is not perfect. It's never completely accurate, both for predicting benefit or lack of benefit. So you may be looking at other aspects of the patient's history, the context of of their entire treatment. So for example, if a patient with advanced stage ovarian cancer seemed to have very little response to platinum treatment, although they did have a successful maybe interval debulking surgery, you may think that if they're not terribly platinum sensitive, then we know that platinum sensitivity is yet another predictor of benefit from PARP inhibitors. You may want to put that into context and and consider another form of maintenance treatment for that patient, such as bevacizumab, or even nothing, uh, observation as the standard, or possibly, if you have the option, a clinical trial in that treatment setting. So it's not always black and white. There may be a lot of reasons to pause and consider whether PARP inhibitor is really the right strategy for your patient, in particular, if you know that they had very little to no platinum sensitivity to their treatment. And so this paper also focuses on dose and duration of maintenance therapy. How long and at what dose should olaparib and niraparib be given? The duration of therapy is informed entirely by the designs of the trial for each agent. And we cannot advocate for longer treatment because we do not know the benefit. So for Olaparib, the SOLO1 study allowed patients to stay on treatment for 24 months, although they could stay on treatment longer if they still had evidence of disease that was shown to be uh, under control with the treatment. The majority of patients did come off treatment at 24 months. Niraparib was given for up to 36 months. And again, there is really no data to suggest that treating longer with either agent would be of any benefit to the patient. And we don't know what the longer term risks would be of staying on those agents beyond the study interval that each of these trials used. The dosing for Olaparib is a standard dose of 300 milligrams twice a day. And for Niraparib, the accepted convention now, and I think moving forward, this will just be the, the way it is always with Niraparib is individualized patient dosing depending on the patient weight and hematologic reserve, such as platelet uh, level at the time of starting Niraparib. There has been quite significant myelotoxicity seen if everyone started at a flat dose of 300 milligrams once a day. Do you find you have patients that are anxious about stopping at the two or three year time point? Yes, so we're actually reaching the two and three year time point with a number of patients right now. And I do think patients have a level of anxiety around stopping. One of the important things I've found is letting patients know well in advance the planned duration of treatment, the rationale for that duration, and the fact that it's based on the research that's been done. And and also, I've found it useful to tell them that at least for the SOLO1 study, we know that stopping at the two-year mark did not seem to precipitate any rapid recurrence of disease. And the five-year follow-up data are reassuring that the benefit of those first two years of treatment is persistent. So I think a lot of it is about priming the patient, preparing them for stopping at their specified time interval, depending on which treatment they're on. And so what kind of monitoring is needed for patients who are on Olaparib and Niraparib? So monitoring of patients, especially at the start of therapy for Olaparib and Niraparib is a very important part of patient care. Whichever agent you're first starting on, 
there's a requirement to monitor closely the hematologic parameters and specifically the CBC because myelosuppression is a very common toxicity. And initially, patients probably need to be monitored weekly for six to eight weeks to start to be sure that they don't have any significant anemia, thrombocytopenia, or neutropenia. It's quite common to have to adjust the dose in those first couple of months of treatment if patients develop cytopenias due to treatment. And dosing, you know, is recommended as per each drug. But I think roughly half of the patients we treat will probably need some dose interruption or dose modification in order to carry on with the drug safely going forward after initiation. Are you able to switch between PARP inhibitors if an unmanageable toxicity kind of occurs with one of them? Yeah, I think switching between PARP inhibitors is a very logical strategy if you really cannot find a manageable dose with one of the agents. These drugs work in the same way, same mechanism, and the benefits seem to cross uh, all the different molecular groups. And in fact, it's being supported by P-coder that switching for unmanageable toxicity is a reasonable option. So I think that, uh, you know, if you've tried all the possible tricks with your agent, supportive medications, dose modifications, dose interruptions, and you're struggling, you, I think it'd be very reasonable to try the other PARP inhibitor if it is possible in your jurisdiction, if it's funded or the patient is able to pay. And in what way do you think this paper will be helpful to physicians who manage patients with ovarian cancer? I think this paper has done a good job of summarizing the key evidence and highlighting some of the areas of remaining controversy or areas where more data is needed and gives the physicians a good guide on how to approach a patient with the different options that we have and maybe consider the selection of the drugs we have carefully in the context of the patient profile and the patient molecular profile as, or the tumor molecular profile as well. When can we expect the paper to be available online? Yeah, the paper is currently submitted, and we hope in the next couple of months there will be at least an e-version of the paper available for Canadian readership. And what do you see as the next steps for the use of PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer treatment? Do you see a hope for a cure with these agents? You know, it's hard to know exactly what will be the next step for PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer treatment. Definitely, there's a lot of research going on combining PARP inhibitors with other agents, trying to exploit various mechanisms of action that could be synergistic and, and hopefully help patients more. Within those studies, it would be very good to see good molecular definitions of those who benefit and don't benefit so that we can really rely on biomarkers for better sorting the patients that we have for appropriate treatment. Do I see a hope for cure with these agents? I think definitely most oncologists would say there is a hope for cure for some a subset of the patients we treat. Will it be exclusively the BRCA patients that might benefit the most? Um, we don't know yet. Will there be other molecular subgroups where we might see incredible gains and hope for cure? Uh, in those subsets, I hope so. But I do think these have been very much treatment changing, paradigm changing agents that will give our patients uh, more hope for staying well and healthy and living free of cancer for much longer than before. So that brings us to the end of our discussion today. Thank you again, Anna, for joining us on the podcast and looking forward to seeing this paper published in the future.
Take care.